Episode 245 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Fly with Garmin Avionics, then grab your mobile device and make the Garmin Pilot app your cockpit companion. Get advanced functions you'll use before, during, and after every flight, including updating your aircraft's databases and logging engine data, plan, file, fly, log, with Garmin Pilot. Pilot to Pilot is brought to you by The Finer Points. These guys are constantly adding content to the Ground School app. Check it out at learnthefinerpoints.com. The TSO certified Bose ProFlight Series 2 aviation headset pairs Bose noise cancellation with optimum comfort. It's engineered to be the lightest, most compact aviation headset for an uncompromised flying experience. Start your 60-day test flight and finance with Bose Pay at bose.com slash proflight. Aviation, what is going on? And welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is a re-release. We are talking ATC with James Heath. I'm currently in the airport, so I might be a little busy right now. Getting to board my flight to start my seven-day tour, but uh, got to get done when you get it done. <laughs> I hope you enjoy this podcast. Let me know if you do. Uh, check us out, Pilot the Pilot and uh, Pilot's Coffee. The packets are coming soon. We're just waiting for them to be shipped to us, so we'll have those coffee packets back here soon as well. But without any further ado, here's James Heath. Hey, James, thanks for coming on the Pilot to Pilot podcast. Yeah, thanks, Justin. Thanks for, thank you for having me. No problem. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Uh, you have a really cool story that I'm really excited to tell. I don't think many people have done what you have done in aviation, so I think it's going to be really helpful to tell your story. Happy to be here. Yeah, man. So uh, let's go ahead and get started. What got you into aviation? Um, I, it's hard to, to point to one singular thing. I just I was always really into airplanes as a kid. Um. My my favorite movie growing up was Iron Eagle. Uh, I'm going to date myself, but I probably wore out the the VHS tape just watching it over and over and over as a kid. And I I remember I got the soundtrack on like cassette, and I would like strap my Walkman to my leg and pretend to be Doug Masters. And <laughs> it was uh, it, I just always liked airplanes. I was fortunate enough when I was like eight or nine years old, I think, to go on a uh, an EAA Young Eagle flight. Um, Purely coincidence, honestly, my mom, uh, I think just knew a guy down at the local airport who owned like a, a Cessna 150 and took me up. And I, I remember vividly it being one of the coolest things I'd ever done. And also simultaneously, one of the most terrifying things I'd ever done. Right. Um, I just, you know, like first time in a small airplane, like every time you'd turn, I was just convinced the door was going to pop open and I was going to fall out. But, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I had a great time and I, I never really considered flying for a career. Um, I, I you know, I went all the way through school. I, I had planned to go to college and, and study music and, uh, you know, I had aspirations of, of doing that for a living. Um, right before it came time to go to college and to pick a major, I, uh, I read Contact by Carl Sagan and I decided that I wanted to be the person who found extraterrestrial life. <laughs> right. Like, this, is, right. this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. So I, I went to college. I'm a, I'm a fellow, uh, a big 10 alum like yourself went to the university of Illinois. Nice. Um, I, uh, I studied astronomy for, for two years. And after two years of, uh, doing that, um, you know, I was living in a frat house kind of doing the party thing a lot. I, I came to a couple conclusions. Uh, the first of which if we are to ever find intelligent life, I'm, I'm sure there's aliens out there. If we were to ever find them, it's incredibly egotistical to think that it's going to be me to do it. <laughs> and, right. and two, two, the second thing is my brain does not comprehend calculus. I just, I cannot do it. I, I tried 
I, I work so hard at it. I can't do it. And so I, it, the math is such a big part of the physics and the physics I really enjoyed, but the, the math just wasn't working in my brain. And so this was the early two thousands. Um, the poker boom was, was huge. It was going on and, uh, I was playing a ton of online poker. This is back when it was legal, of course. Yeah. Um, I was making more money playing online poker than I was like working my part-time jobs. And like I, I bartended and I drove pizzas and, you know, I worked at a coffee shop and I, I was consistently making more money playing online poker. So I said to myself, you know what? I'm going to drop out of school. I'm going to go try and be an online poker pro. And I told my mom my plan and she said, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> no, no chance, no chance in hell. You're going to get your degree in whatever. I don't care. And then when you get your degree, do what you want with your life, but you, but no, you're going to stay in school and you're going to finish. You're going to get a degree. All That's right. really funny. <sighs> Fine. So, um, I'm, you know, flipping to the course catalog, which is a course in, in course in alphabetical order. And so aviation pops up as one of the first things. And I go, huh, I, I didn't realize we had an aviation program here. That's cool. Um, so I just said, you know, and nothing else sounded interesting to me. Nothing else sounded like I wanted to spend two more years there, you know, studying it. So, on a whim, I, I went out and I took, uh, took the, it was a summer session. Um, the first, it was like aviation 101, the first uh, semester of the private pilot training. Um, it was a super hot, like incredibly humid mid June day in like central Illinois. I uh, went to the airport. Uh, I was dripping in sweat before I even finished like learning how to do the walk around. Right. Oh yeah. That's never a good you day. Know, yeah. Like we went out, it was, you know, just super hot, super bumpy. Um, we went, we went out and just like, you know, a little 1.2 out in the practice area, just a real quick intro. Maybe we did like a steep turn in a stall, came back and did like a touch and go. And, and that was it, man. I was hooked. I was like, what have I been doing for the last two years? Like, why have I been sitting in like physics lectures talking about like, you know, quantum physics going cross-eyed, trying to rack my brain doing calculus when I could have been doing this the whole time? Like, oh man, I, I made a mistake. So I walked out completely just soaking wet, drenched in sweat. The aviation academic, uh, academic advisor's office was right there at the airport in the little uh, classroom terminal thing. I walked right in there and I said, how do I change my major? <laughs> and, you know, she's right there on the spot. I, I became an aviation major. And of course, the problem is since you, I'm sure most 141 schools are like this since every class is a prerequisite for the next you can't really double up. So I was there, I was therefore committing myself to another four years in college when I already spent two there. So <laughs> I, I put myself on the six year plan, two more and I could have been a doctor, but yeah. we won't talk about that. You call your mom and be like, Oh, um, I'm not, I'm not leaving college. I'm adding two more <laughs> years on to college. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And my mom who is a still to this day, a very nervous flyer, uh, does not, uh, enjoy airplanes whatsoever was terrified of the prospect of me, of me being a pilot now. But I was like, Hey, is, you told me to stay in school. Um, and to the point where when I, when I started flying, she would make me call her after every single lesson, <laughs> you know, three days a week, I fled Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and I had to call her after every single time to be like, I'm, I landed, I'm safe. Like I'm alive. It's okay. That's really funny. Don't, don't worry about it. But I did that. I did, uh, all of, uh, all my ratings there, um, finished in four years left with my, my, uh, CFI, double IMEI commercial certificate. Um, I instructed for a semester there, uh, while I was finishing up my degree and, uh, and then uh, I graduated and I had, it was May of 2008, which was a awful time to enter the aviation industry. Yeah, probably one of the uh, worst times. Yeah, it was, uh, it, I, I started, I suddenly had regrets, like, what have I got myself into? 
cause you know, flying airplanes is fun and all, but it was just a very, uh, uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's a, it's a cyclical industry and we were definitely at like the, the bottom of a down cycle right there. So my options were essentially flight instructing. That's, that was, that was really the only, only game running at that point. So Illinois offered me a job as a full-time instructor. I was offered another job from a flight school in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, the, the job in Arizona paid a little more. Um, but more importantly, I was, you know, all of my flying had been in, in the Midwest. You know, the furthest I had gone was maybe, uh, you know, Kentucky or Indiana or something on a, on a cross country. Um, I, I thought it'd be really fun to kind of get out, see a new part of the world, you know, do some mountain flying, do, do something a little, um, you know, do something new, do something I hadn't done before. So I, I went to the, uh, I took the job in Arizona. Um, and it was, uh, essentially it was, they, they had a couple different programs there. The largest one being the, the Chinese, uh, airline pilot training program, which was all ab initio training zero to hero in about 10 months. Yep. Um, these kids would come over having never seen an airplane or, or, or heard of an airplane until they got on one in, in, Beijing three days before. That's crazy. Um, yeah. And, and the language barrier, uh, they obviously, they, they spoke, uh, you know, a passable amount of English. Um, but there, it was, it was incredibly frustrating, super long days. You know, you fly 14, 16 hours a day. Um, not, not of course like, you know, Hobbs time, but you, you know, that's working time. Right. Briefs and debriefs. Um, I, I did a lot of instrument training, which I, I, kind of enjoyed i preferred to do ifr training um but that was all at night just for you know aircraft utilization purposes so uh all the private and commercial guys would fly during the daytime and the instrument guys would fly at night so i spent like six months working from like 6 p.m to 6 a.m and you know barely seeing the sun and it was demoralizing you know i'd, I'd fly up to to kingman arizona which is in the northwest part of the state and the ramp was just full of parked express jet Embraer 145s and they had, you know, they had however many pilots on furlough at that time. And it just seemed like every day I was working so hard, not getting any closer to this dream of, of being an airline pilot. And I, you know, I absolutely question like, have I, have I made a mistake? Like, is it, is it time to maybe start looking at plan B here? Um, cause it, it, it seems now it's, it's easy to look back and say, well, you know, just write it out. Everything will be okay. You know, cause we had, you know, the age 65 thing had just gone through. So it was, everything was just, just held up. Yeah. It was not a good time to be in aviation it, or just it was getting in aviation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, I, I absolutely wondered like, have I, have I made a terrible mistake? Um, maybe I should start thinking about doing something else in aviation, which is, I, I still enjoy it. I still like it. I want to, you know, stay in the industry is there something else i can do besides being an airline pilot because this you know from the time i took my first flight four years earlier to then that's really a, that had been my singular focus it was on why i want to fly a jet i want to work for an airline and so i was working the night shift at the time uh one of the dispatchers there is a guy named kyle who's still a good friend of mine he was working on his ratings at the time and he had aspirations to be an air traffic controller and i said huh you know i hadn't even thought of that um we went on a tour of the tower there. It's a, uh, it was a Deer Valley airport in Arizona. And, uh, it was really, it was really cool. It was very laid back. Like it, it was very interesting getting to, you know, cause there's like 12 or 15 controllers that work there. You recognize their voices and you put a, a face to the voice and, and just kind of seeing what they do from that side of things was very, uh, it was very eye opening to me. Um, and I thought, you know, gosh, this, this might be, 
this might be kind of a cool thing. You know, you're still very much, you know, uh, a part of the, the aviation industry and, 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 you know, a vital part, but you know, at the time it, it seemed even more appealing working in like an air conditioned tower cab when I was out there in 115 degree <laughs> for sure. wearing my, yeah, you know, like sweating and half the airplanes didn't have air conditioning and the ones yeah. that did were, you know, MEL most of the time. So, or, or the flip side going out and doing like a commercial night cross country in a Seminole, at, you know, 11 five and that combustion heater is not working. And now you're you know, freezing in November over New Mexico. Like it, it was suddenly the idea of, you know, Hey, I get to go home every night and work in a nice, you know, tower or radar room somewhere. Yeah. It sounded very appealing to me. And then I, I started giving it more and more thought. I, you know, I'm flying around at night and, you know, we're talking to Phoenix approach and I just remember listening. I remember one night listening to this guy who was working uh, a whole bunch of sectors combined and uh, he was firing off like rapid fire clearances for, for the jets going into sky Harbor. And then he would, you know, rip off a couple like practice approach uh, clearances for the, you know, the, the Cessnas and the archers and stuff flying around uh, down to the South. And it was, it, the guy was just, was, was busting jets, man. It was, it was really exciting. Just listening to him just bam, 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 clearance, clearance, clearance. I was like, this, this might be kind of fun. So, this was at the very end of kind of a, an air traffic control hiring cycle, 2009, I guess, summer 2009. Um, and I, uh, I applied for, it was, it was an off the street bid. They called them PubNats back then, national publications. Yeah. Uh, I applied to PubNet 8 in like July, 2009. Um, and I was expecting that, uh, you know, at this point people were getting hired super fast. Um, maybe like, you know, six months from you apply, you're, you're in the academy training to be a controller. Uh, the, the, you know, again, terrible timing, um, for the second time in my career, <laughs> everything kind of slowed down at that point. Um, so after, uh, well, let me go back here. So I applied in July, 2009. And then at that point, everything kind of, kind of slowed down. Um, the, the economy was of course in the tank. Um, budget crisis, the government kind of did like a hiring freeze for the next couple of years of, of not really hiring any air traffic controllers. So I, I had left the flying school at this point. Um, I spent a little time being unemployed. Uh, and it became rapidly clear to me that, well, crap, like maybe this air traffic control thing isn't going to happen or maybe it's not going to happen as fast as I thought it would. Yeah. So I, I got on at a ground, a uh, little ground handler in St. Louis. Actually, I'd moved back home. I was living with my mom again, 20, you know, 25, 26 years old. Uh, I, I got on with this ground handler called ATS and they, they were looking for someone who had general aviation experience. And I found out later that's because they were starting this new contract handling uh, caravans. Um, so basically my job there is I'd go check the people in at the, at the front of the airport and I'd go walk them down caravan pull up. I put the tail stand in and open the door and they'd climb on up and close the door and, you know, give the weight and balance info to the pilots. And that was basically my job. It was pretty boring, but it was <laughs> paid the bills. Uh, yeah. You know, I was, I was back, I was back working in, in the industry, you know, that, that company ended up getting uh, the contract for ground handling us airways. Nice. Um, so I ended up moving to the other side of the airport and I worked uh, as an ops agent there uh, for almost a year, um, basically just doing load planning. Um, and that was that was cool, too. It was my first time really being around like a a major airline operation, um, you know, being on the ramp and I'd go out and wing walk or go out and throw bags. And that was like um, really good experience seeing, you know, the 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 the. the 
that side of the, of the industry. Yeah. Um, and we, I'd get to, you know, go out and break ride, um, when we'd move the planes to, uh, remote pads. So, you know, go out and basically start the APU and turn on the hydraulics in an Airbus and they'd tow the thing and you'd park it. And that was, uh, you know, that was at the time super cool to sit in the, the cockpit of a, of an Airbus or an right. old, they had like the 737 400 series air still flying back then. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, that was a, that was a, it was a cool time, but I, this whole time I'm like, okay, I'm going to meet air traffic control. I'm going to meet air traffic controller. And they still weren't calling. And I was like, all right, well, if this isn't going to happen, I need to, like, I'm not going to spend the rest of my life being an ops agent. Right. Um, nothing wrong with go. that being your job. Nothing just, wrong with that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I did a pilot and you want to yeah, be an air traffic had, controller. Exactly. I had, I had higher aspirations. Um, it was, it was just not what I wanted to do in the industry. So, uh, I, you know, I'm like, I need to get back into flying. Well, now it's 2010, still not a great time, but things are starting to trickle open. Um, I still knew a couple of the caravan pilots from working with them in the previous, uh, on the other side of the airport. And I, I approached a couple of them and said, Hey, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a flight instructor. I got a thousand hours, you know, hundred multi. You guys hiring? Like what, uh, you think you can get my resume into the right people? And they said, yeah, absolutely. So, um, Sure enough, got hired with a couple other guys, uh, at the end of 2010, uh, flying the caravan. And that, that was, uh, kind of my, um, sort of my, uh, my re-entry into flying. You know, I hadn't flown in almost a year probably. Uh, but that was a really fun job. Um, did like EAS, yep. uh, routes between St. Louis and Chicago Harris. So we'd fly from, St. Louis to either Burlington, Iowa, or Decatur, Illinois, um, and then from there on to O'Hare, which flying a caravan to O'Hare. I know you mentioned at one point in the podcast about flying a, uh, a caravan at a Kennedy. Is that right? Yeah, we flew. I flew on a caravan at Kennedy, caravan in the Dulles, caravan in O'Hare, Charlotte, Cincinnati, a lot of Bravo airspaces. So right, it's it's uh, it's quite an experience. Yeah. Um, oh, and a, and into Atlanta Hartsfield, that was an experience. Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Yep. It's uh, it's funny though because. Uh, it, it, it actually, it works better than I think most people would realize just because, you know, you can, you can do what, 175 or something is a red line in that thing. Yep. You can, you can do that essentially to the fence when you're landing on a 10,000 foot runway. Yeah. You have, you have a lot of room for error on a, on that exactly. runway. Exactly. Yeah. So we would, we would land on like the, on two eight in, in O'Hare and they would, they would, you know, we'd be doing like slow flight on downwind and they build us a hole. We turn inbound and then they say, all right, max forward to the, to the numbers. All right, here we go. And then we'd get inside the marker and everyone goes from 170 to like 120. And so now we're got, we're gaining like a mile a minute on the Airbus in front of us. And they're like, <laughs> what's your airspeed? 175. Okay. Well, reduce to 120. All right. Well, you told us max four. To that. Yeah. So they started to, to get, once they figured out how to work us and it, it became, you know, then you do 120 to the fence. And the, the best part of that plane too, is that the top of the white arc is, is the red line. So you just throw on one notch of flaps right over the thing and bam, landed on, make the first taxiway, you know, just oh, pulled yeah. up. Pull the prop back just like right where a flat pitches and you just it's like a speed break, you know, it was, it was great for sure. And, and you can't really do that with passengers on board. Um, but thankfully these were EAS routes. So we were empty most of the time. <laughs> yep. um, <laughs> Typical EAS yeah. flying, right? Honestly. Yeah. We, we made the money was made just by moving the airplane from point to point. So if we sold a ticket, it was just straight profit. Yeah, um, that's crazy. But yeah, so we would, we would, uh, we'd fly, we'd fly a little more gently if we had people on board, of course, but, um, yeah, that was, that was really fun flying. It was great. Uh, it was hand flying in the weather. 
you know, unpressurized. So the most, you know, we'd go to six, 7,000 feet, 8,000 feet. Um, a lot of, a lot of good actual time that I had never really gotten instructing in Arizona because it's VFR all the time there. Yeah. Um, so I, I got a lot of, um, really good actual, uh, instrument experience doing that. Um, and then I said, you know, all right, well, if we're going to commit to this fine thing, let's, let's start throwing some applications out there. So I applied to a bunch of regional airlines that were hiring at that point. Um, and I got a handful of phone calls. Uh, I interviewed with Masaba in, uh, in Minneapolis. Throwing it back. I don't even know if Masaba still an airline. Well, no, they're not. So what happened was this was after Pinnacle at the time, Endeavor now had bought Colgan and Masaba. Okay. And the idea was going to be, we're going to take, uh, all the jets and are going to be Pinnacle. All the props are going to be Masaba and we're going to have one, like two airlines under one kind of joint thing, almost like how our public does it, I think. Right. Um, so I interviewed with Masaba and I, I interviewed, uh, interviewed with American Eagle, uh, or as they were called at the time. Um, and I was offered jobs from both and I, it was, in hindsight, I would, I may have done things differently, but Colgan was, you know, Hey, we're getting 60 more Q400 because you're going to upgrade in 18 months. This is the place to be. It's going to be awesome. And, and really the, the allure was, you're not really going to work for Colgan. You're going to work for Masaba because we're going to be called Masaba here soon. All right. Um, I, I knew, um, I had some, uh, a flight instructor of mine from before I'd worked for Masaba. He was actually on furlough at the time, uh, <laughs> right before he, he had just been recalled, uh, as they were hiring me. Um, but, uh, they offered me a class first there. The, the class they offered me was about a month before the, the class at Eagle. And everyone says, seniority is everything. Take the first class day. Right. Yep. For sure. Um, they, so I said, all right, all right, I'll do it. I show up. Um, I was the, it was kind of, a, it was a split class. It was like half Q400, half sob. They did the seniority by your birth date. And I was like kind of middle of the road in age. Um, so I was like the bottom of the Q400 uh, or I could have chosen Saab and been top of the Saab, but the Q400 bases were an easier commute from where yeah. I was living in the list of the time. So uh did that, flew that for a while. Uh, I get to the line. Um, immediately, right as soon as we get to the line, that's when they, they did the seniority list integration. And that's when they announced, like, we're perking all the Saabs. Saabs are going away. Oh, no. Um No, now we have to re... Um, they did an entire system rebid. So all these sob guys who were relatively senior, they got, you know, places up on the jet and the CRJ and then the Q400, which displaced a bunch of Q400 guys, um, to like the CRJ 200 and like Kennedy and stuff, Detroit. <laughs> Yay. So I, I missed displacement by two seniority numbers. No way. But so now, good thing you got there when you did, right? But yes, yes. But however, now I am the second to most junior Q400 pilot in the company and it's going to stay that way for at least a year. Yeah. So I was based in Houston at the time. Uh, I'm commuting to reserve. Uh, I, I spent, I remember a month in the summer of 2011 where I think I did a turn the whole month. I did one turn and I was commute. I commuted back and forth four or five times. Wow. Um, it was demoralizing yeah. again. I'm like, great timing. Uh, is this really what an air is this? Is this what I, you know, all these years I wanted to be an airline pilot. Is this, is this what it was? You is know, this meant the to glamorous be? life of an airline pilot that I always dreamed of? Exactly. And, and here I am, I'm commuting to reserve. I'm not even getting to fly. That was the worst part is I wanted to fly. I was, I would call crew scheduling and be like, is there anything you guys have for me? Like 
I'll, I mean, you know, repo someplace like, yeah, right. I'll, you know, can I, can I do anything? I'm just so bored sitting in my crash pad. Um, but it, it, that was, that was the situation I was in. So it became sort of more and more apparent that, um, Pinnacle was in financial trouble. Writing was on the wall that, um, it's not going to be a great time here. I started thinking, you know, what if I ended up, you know, having to go back and retrain on the CRJ anyway, if I have to go all the way through training again, I'd at least like to do it at a company that I wanted to be at. And that had a base in the city I wanted to live. And this is where I got to the point where maybe I've regretted not taking the class at Eagle because Eagle had a Chicago base. My girlfriend, now wife, uh, had just moved to Chicago. So Chicago's where I wanted to be. Um, Pinnacle has no Chicago base with no plans to, to make one, of course. Um, I now Eagle, and this is, this is, I'm, I'm, um, digressing here, but Eagle was going through the whole, um, divesting thing from American airlines at that time. So that was not a great place to be either. Honestly, no, there, but, I don't really but, know if there was a good place to be at that time. To be honest, <laughs> you're right. Yeah. You're honestly, you're right. Uh, so I, I, but I wanted, I wanted a place that had a Chicago base. Um, and I had a whole bunch of friends who worked for SkyWest, and they said, dude, come on over. Chicago's like our junior base because SkyWest is made up of, of a bunch of pilots that want to be out West. So everyone wants to be in Los Angeles and San Francisco and Denver and Seattle. No, nobody wants to be in Chicago or Minneapolis. Those are the junior bases, which is exactly where I wanted to be. So I said, all right. So I interviewed SkyWest, got hired. Um, my class date started the day after Christmas in uh, 2011. So I, my, <laughs> I flew my last flight in the Q400 on Christmas Eve. Um, it was a maintenance repo from Houston up to like Mosinee, Wisconsin, CWA. Misava had like a heavy checks facility there. Yeah. So we had a, a deadhead scheduled um, from through Chicago back to Houston. I jump seated back home from Chicago to St. Louis. I FedExed. I'd already given my two weeks and everything. I didn't, you know, I wasn't just like bailing. I, I gave my two weeks notice. <laughs> yeah. I told my chief pilot it's my last day. You did it right. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, uh, but then I, I went home Christmas Eve. I FedExed my, my badge and my charts and everything back to, back to Colgan. And then I left on Christmas day to go to Salt Lake to do, uh, training at Sky West. That's um, crazy. And I, I'll never forget it was Christmas day. So the flight was basically empty and I got a first class seat. It was a Sky, it was a Sky West CRJ nine. And, uh, I got a first class seat going there and I was like, all right, like, this is, this is what I'm talking about. Like, this is, I made the right choice. Someone's treating me right. Finally, this yeah, exactly. loves me. Yeah. It was, you know, <laughs> it was, and honestly, I, I, I went through training there. Uh, I got Minneapolis out of the gate. Um, I spent three or so months there. Um, did a lot of Canadian flying cause I was a, a junior FO in the winter in Minneapolis. Um, fun times, right? But yeah, you know, I actually flying to Canada was a great time. I, yeah. it was, that was a really, a lot of really fun, uh, flying there it was a lot of it was all crj 200 flying it was all really short um kind of short hops um which was you know you do a lot of legs per day but it was it was fun flying i remember i really enjoyed it i, I liked i liked flying the crj more than i liked flying the q400 i know that might be be uh, a little bit of sacrilege there i i <laughs> i'm glad i had the experience flying the q400 absolutely um but the crj was just a way easier plane to fly it was way less um uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It was way less, uh, labor intensive. Yeah. Cause with the, man, the, the Q400 is, is a bear to fly sometimes. Um, That's what I've heard. Yeah. It's, it's a and, fun plane, but can be interesting. Oh yeah. It's a great, it will teach you stick and rotor skills like no other. You have got to be coordinated to fly that plane, but 
it's exhausting. And then you go to the CRJ and I'm like, wait, I can just turn the yoke and I won't yaw the rudder 30 feet in one direction. <laughs> like, ah, oh, it's amazing. CRJ was much simpler to fly. I really enjoyed the flying. I ended up getting to Chicago after three months or so. And SkyWest was hiring perpetually behind me. So by summer, um, I've been there six months or so. I'm holding the line in nice. Chicago. Um, you know, awesome trips, man, too. It was, it was really fun. Now, uh, you know, go out West and do a lot of really cool flying there. Um, at this point, I've, uh, I've been in the background, um, keeping up with the air traffic control hiring process. So I've, I went and I, I interviewed, uh, at the St. Louis Tracon when I was still working for Colgan. Um, I filled out, uh, um, all my security clearance paperwork. I've, uh, gone on done the medical exam. This has all kind of just been happening slowly over the course of these two or three years. Um, I, but I'm, I'm really, I'm not, I don't, I'm not banking on too much at this point, you know, like yeah. I'm, I'm doing flying that I like now. I'm working for an airline that I enjoy working for. And, you know, Hey, you know, if ATC happens, it happens, but so I'm not that, exactly. At that time you were still looking to get into air, into air traffic control though. I mean, it, 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 it had become the backup plan for me. It had all, you know, it was, I'd always had it in my back pocket and I was always, you know, if, if it happens for me, it happens for me, but I, I, I wasn't holding my breath, you know, like it, it had taken so long at this point. It had been three years since I applied that I, I wasn't very optimistic. Did you have to keep reapplying or was it just one application? No, no, it was just, it was the one application. Um, it's just, you know, I had been in the system at this point, um, yeah. kind of a, kind of in purgatory. So after I'd done all the, the, um, the application stuff and it's, you know, so you saw, you took the test, um, the, the assessment test, and then you, you take the, um, you have a in-person interview, you fill out security clearance paperwork, you do a medical screening, you do all this, um, all this stuff. And this has been slowly every six months, they'd contact me and say, Hey, we want you to do this. Like, all right. But <laughs> I, it had been at the point where I was like, all right, this is, I can't count on this happening, you know, right. in the, in the way that I was expecting it to, to be when I first applied. So if it happens, it happens, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to make it plan A. That's like a lot of people's outlook in aviation in general is, Oh, I have this grand plan where I'm going to do this, this and this, and it's going to be the perfect opportunity, the perfect path. But I'd honestly say 99.99% of your plans and people that have those plans don't come to fruition and it's going to be different. So be prepared right. to be, to handle adversity, to prepare, be prepared to kind of be told no and just have, uh, like you said, have a plan B. Let's take a break from today's episode to hear from our sponsor, RAA. Okay, time out for a quick PSA. It's open enrollment season again. That once a year window to sign up for changes in your airline benefits, including medical coverage, disability, 401k, and others. Now, this is important because these are pivotal decisions that can significantly impact you and your family's financial future. So this isn't the time to wing it. So do what I do and schedule a free benefits optimization review from our partners at RAA. An airline specialized advisor will go over your plan and help tailor your election so you'll know you're making the best possible decisions for your personal needs and goals and maximizing your airline's benefits to the fullest. But your open enrollment period will fly by. So go to raa.com slash pilot to pilot, that's pilot to pilot, to schedule your complimentary benefits review today. While you're there, check out their open enrollment resource center where you'll find videos, articles, and more tools to help guide you through this crucial decision period. Don't miss out. Go to raa.com slash pilot to pilot, that's pilot to pilot. And now back to today's episode. Yeah. And that, that was kind of a constantly reoccurring theme uh, in my career, at least, is that I've had really bad timing. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm incredibly fortunate to be where I am now, but I've, I've consistently had terrible timing. Um, and I, there's been so many points where I've been like, gosh, like I, I may have made a mistake. 
what let's let's start looking at another option. Um, and I think that's very important, especially for for young pilots. I mean, now is obviously a very good time to get in aviation, um, but it's cyclical. It's not always going to be like this. Um, one day thing, hopefully not. But if you you know look at history, it's likely that it's not always going to be as good as it is right now. It's very true. And I think it is it is very important to to have a backup plan, whatever that may be. You know, whatever your own personal version of a backup plan. I think that's really important. Um, so I was in Chicago at the time. I signed a lease uh, with a friend of mine from college who flew for American Eagle Time Flights for American Airlines now. Um, and I left on a trip the next day, four-day trip. First day, we go Chicago to Dallas, Dallas to San Francisco. We get flow delayed hard in San Francisco, so we don't make it to Reno until like 3 o'clock in the morning local time or something ridiculous. Nice. Um, I go to sleep. My phone rings two hours later, and I'm half in a haze, and I look at it, and it's an Oklahoma City area code. I have some family in Oklahoma city and the FAA is based in Oklahoma city. So yeah. I'm like, maybe I should, maybe I should answer this. <laughs> uh, so hello, I was half asleep and it was, uh, you know, hi, this is so-and-so with the FAA careers division. We'd like to offer you a class, uh, for Washington center. Uh, would you, would you, are you interested? And I was like, uh, <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on. Can I call you back? Like it's, you know, it's six o'clock in the morning local. So it's like 8 a.m. there. And I'm like, uh, I, can I, can I call you back later today? And she's like, yeah, of course. Just let me know. That's awesome. And I'm like, crap. I just, I just signed a year lease two days, two days prior. And I'm like, how, how, how can my timing be this bad at this point? Like how, <laughs> like, like what? So I, I think, I think it over and I talk it over with my girlfriend and, and I say, you know, are we going to do this? Like, you know, because we've been dating for about as long as like, we started actually dating right about the same time I applied to be an air traffic controller. So she always knew this was kind of a, a dream of mine, or at least in the back of my head. Yeah. So are we going to go do this now? Or are we going to keep, are we going to live this, you know, this flying life? Cause we were both happy in Chicago. I love Chicago. Yeah. Um, and she said, well, is there any way you can work at a facility in Chicago? And I said, huh? So the way they hire air traffic controllers now is very different than the way they hired them when I was hired. Okay. Um, now they just hire you for terminal or en route. Either you're going to go to a center or you're going to go to a tower or a Tracon. Then you go to the academy and you're scored at the academy. Um, that dictates, like, they give you a list of facilities. The guy in the class with the top score gets the first pick. So he gets to choose wherever he wants to go, kind of. Right, yeah. Okay. If you get the highest score in your class, you get the first pick of a, not wherever you want to go, but of the list of facilities they give you. Right. And the guy who does the worst in the class gets basically, well, congratulations, you're going to New York Center. I'm sorry, I joke. Uh, <laughs> that's terrible. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's, honestly, yeah, it's they, you, you end up in a less desirable place. But when I came through, uh, they they gave you a facility assignment prior to hiring you. So this whole time, when they had first given me a tentative offer letter, the tentative offer letter said, congratulations, you're hired, and you're going to go to Washington Center. All right, fine. Um, the, the the guy, the, my friend Kyle, the dispatcher in, uh, at the flight school, who had convinced me to apply to be an air traffic controller, was from the D.C. area originally. And so once uh, once you do the – or when you do the initial application, they asked you to pick a, a list of um, – Called them geoprefs, uh, geographical preferences of where in the country you'd like to work. So I, I have no idea. I just want to work anywhere you guys are going to give me a job. <laughs> All right. Um, 
But I, I, I had it in my head that I wanted to do in route. I kind of wanted to work at a center versus a tower. I can't tell you why. I really don't know. I just, it, it the idea of working radar, um, appealed to me more than the idea uh, of working in a tower. So yeah. I selected in route. Um, and then he said, why don't you pick Virginia? Cause that's where Washington center is. And that's right. But where I grew up and it's a really cool facility. Um, they do a lot, they have a lot of really cool, uh, airspace and that's, it's a really, it's a cool, it's a good area. And I said, all right, sure. I'll pick Virginia. And then with my second state, I got to choose. I, I wanted to maximize my chances of getting hired. Um, so there's three states in the country that have two centers apiece, California, Texas, and Florida. And of those three states, I chose California because that was the one that I would most probably like to live in. Um, so Virginia, California, those are my geoprefs. And then that's how I ended up at Washington Center, completely on a whim. Like he just said, hey, it's a cool facility. It's, a, it's Northern Virginia is a cool place to live. You should, you should pick Washington Center. All right. So you're like, all right, man, whatever you say. Yeah, whatever you say. <laughs> hey, this, you've, you've, you've convinced me to apply for air traffic control. Why would I not listen to your advice now? You know, I know right? um, so cut back to head here to, uh, where were we? Um, oh, so I I call back um, the HR lady in Oklahoma City and I say, is there any way I can get a redirect to Chicago Center? Um, and I explained to her the situation. I've just signed a lease. Um, I, I, you know, if, if there's any way I can stay here in Chicago, I'd really appreciate it. And she says, okay, well, I'll work on it, but I'm going to have to take you out of the rotation for this particular class for Washington Center at this time. I said, that's fine. Um, she calls me back like a month later and says, uh, I can give you a Providence tower. And I was like, well, no, that's not, <laughs> that's not what I said. Yeah. And they call, they call me back over the, you know, over the course of the next several months and they offer me, a um, a bunch of other facilities that just in parts of the country that just didn't interest me. Um, there's, uh, jumping back here on. So this is July. It was July, 2000, uh, 12 when they called me to offer me the the job the class date they were going to offer me i'll never forget this date it was august 22nd um the reason i don't forget the date is because on august 22nd after having turned down the class trying to go to chicago i was in bozeman montana on like the last day of like a three-day trip and in our jump seat is a controller from kansas city center doing a fam ride yeah the the irony was not lost on me and i was like you know that this is crazy. I was, I had a class date to go to the Academy and be an air traffic controller. I had, I turned it down because I'm trying to get a different facility. Um, but I basically, it was, I picked his brain for the entire two hour flight to Denver and he loved his job and he had nothing but the best things to say about it. And, and just basically I, I saw that as a sign. Like today was supposed to be the day I was going to go. Um, that is pretty crazy. And now there's an air traffic controller in my jump seat. Like this is the first time I'd ever seen it. I didn't even know air traffic controllers had that, you know, privilege. For sure. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. And I was like, what are the odds, you know, in Bozeman, Montana, going to Denver, I'm going to have this, uh, this air traffic controller here telling me how she loves me. On the day you're supposed to start your training. Too. On, on the day that I would have been in Oklahoma City had I taken the class day. Yeah. So that to me was kind of a sign of like, you know, maybe I should give this a try. Cause the whole time I had been weighing this back and forth, like, should I do it? Should I not? Um, what I ended up coming up with was, you know, I know a whole lot of pilots who have left to go be air traffic controllers. I didn't know a single air traffic controller that had left to go be a regional pilot. <laughs> That's a good point. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it, the, 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 the motion only happens in one direction there. Uh, but I, 
and the other thing is I'm not, I'm not selling anything. I'm not, I'm not getting rid of my ratings. I'm not getting rid of my time. You know, like I, I, I still have all my, all my certificates, all of my ratings, all of my, my experience. Um, and if I don't like it, I'll, I can get back into flying. Right. But I, I was getting close. I was 28, I guess at the time, almost 29. I was getting close to aging out. Cause 31 is the max age to get hired as an air traffic controller. So, you know, if I was going to do this now is the time. Um, so I, it took about another six months, but they finally called me and they offered me a class for Washington center. I said, sure. Um, I was able to work out a leave of absence from SkyWest. Uh, my chief pilot was very supportive, very good guy. Um, and he, he said, I'll give you two months basically. Um, now the Academy runs for four months, but he needed me back by like spring break time if I, if I was going to come back. So he said, I'll give you my class date started like January of, of, uh, 2013. He said, I'll give you till March 1st. You know, if you're going to come back, you can come back by March 1st, you can keep your seniority. So basically I took an unpaid leave for the first two months in the Academy. And this gave me the chance to go see what it was like, uh, see if I enjoyed it or if I thought I was going to be any good at it. And if I got there and I was like, ugh, not for me, I can go back to SkyWest. My seniority is intact. And you know what I mean? I, I gave it a shot. Yeah, that's really cool that he was willing to do that because I know a lot and of airlines would be like, why would you do that? Where, why would you not want to fly? We don't want you. Right. It was incredibly cool. He was, he was, uh, he was, he was, um, really accommodating in doing that for me. And I, I still appreciate it to this day. Um, so I, I went, uh, went to the Academy. Uh, the first six or five weeks, I guess the Academy is, I was an off the street hire, which is the, you know, basically it's for people with no aviation experience. So the That's first funny. five, yeah, the first five weeks, it's just, they, they take you through, it's essentially like a private and instrument ground school. will all kind of combine into one. Yeah. Um, it was excruciatingly boring. Um, <laughs> it, it was just, it was very, very basic, very bare bones, but I, I got through that. And then the, the second uh, part of the training, it's three months, it's inward initial. You start with non radar and then you go to, to the radar training. Um, I realized at least by, by, by the end of February, early March that I was like, all right, I think I'm going to like this. I think I'll be good at this. And I, so I resigned, uh, at Sky West, um, begrudgingly. I, I really loved working there. A lot of good people, a lot of good flying. Um, I recommend that company to anyone. I, uh, I really enjoyed my time there. Uh, so here I am. I'm now I'm in the Academy. I'm, I'm flying without a net essentially. Uh, if, if I were to wash out, I'm back to square one. I have no job, no place to go. And I'm homeless at this point too. Cause I managed to sublet <laughs> my, uh, my apartment in Chicago. Jeez, that's so, crazy. It's a lot happening all at once. A lot to kind of yeah, take in. Yeah. It's, and you know, they say, you know, it's, it's the, the academy is a lot of pressure because, uh, it's, I tell this to everyone. I, I get a lot of, of messages from people who are, who are going through the academy or people who are interested in, in, in their traffic control pipeline. And I, the thing I always say is, is the academy is not like, the point of the academy is not to teach you how to be an air traffic controller. The point of the academy is to see if you are trainable. Gotcha. To see if like, it's it's a screening process. They they apply a whole bunch of stress and they say, can you handle it? And can you work within? Can you play this silly little video game under the parameters which we give you? And you know manage the stress. That's like don't fail or you're not going to, you're going to you know, be unemployed. Right. Um, the, the actual training takes place at your real facility, but I, I tell everyone that like, it's not the point of the Academy is not to, 
to teach you how to do real world air, real world air traffic control. It's it's a silly video game. It's but to make sure that you are prepared enough to enter the real world experience. Essentially, yeah, it's it's um it's to 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 see if you possess the skill set to to do this and to be trained in a real live facility which is probably a good thing because you are uh responsible for a lot of aircraft <laughs> yeah no it's I, I i think uh there are certain things about maybe the training process that, that could be revamped but um yeah i think that's that's a good idea the, the screening process is for the most part i think pretty important so I, I did i was fortunate enough to pass the academy um reported to washington center in may of 2013 and um then begins the the very long process of checking out at a at a high level uh, radar facility. So it takes maybe anywhere from two to four years to check out fully certify at oh, wow. a uh, at an air traffic control facility. I mean, maybe at like a a lower level tower, it's more in the order of like six months to a year. Um, but at a at a big center, like two, three, four years is is pretty common. Um, for two to four years, you had someone that was kind of watching over you, seeing what you did the whole time? Well, it's a process. So you show up. Um, the first six weeks you spend there, you do nothing but draw maps. Um, so you sit in a, in a room in the training department on like a, a drafting table and you draw, you start with a, the high, the high altitude map of your entire facility. You draw the whole thing, including, you know, VORs, jet airways, all the sectorization and altitudes. You memorize all that basically. Then you move on to your own area map. So the way it works basically is within within an air, an in route center, um, they divide it up into areas of specialization. Uh, for example, if you look at a map of of Washington Center, it's you know we we own airspace from New Jersey to West Virginia to like South Carolina. It's a huge huge chunk of airspace. Not every controller is expected to know all that airspace. So what they do is they break it up into chunks of, of areas of specialization, as they call it. So Washington Center has six. So I was assigned to, to one particular area of specialization. So I now I have to draw the, the map for that entire area. Oh, wow. So really, I'm only, I'm only memorizing the airspace uh, of one sixth of that, of that chunk. So I'm sure maybe it's still a, a good amount, though. Uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty tremendous amount of information. Yeah, it's, uh, I think on the map test, the final graded map test, there's something like a thousand different um data points on there. So you're drawing or you're, you're labeling, I should say, um, every single Victor airway, every single jet route, every nav aid, you're, you're labeling the Mias, the Mochas, the, um, the, the, the sectorization altitudes, all the, the sectors around you, the frequencies of the sectors around you. It's, uh, That's crazy. It's, there's a reason it takes you six weeks. Six weeks is like the minimum you spend, uh, up there just drawing a map. Yeah. All you do is you, you become, intimately familiar with this map because that's going to become really important later. What's, um, what's like the minimum test grade that you can get on that? Do you have to get all a thousand, right? Or is there like a certain number you have to get? Right? Um, I, I think you just, it's, I think it's kind of subjective if you get enough, right. Um, I was never actually told a, a particular passing standard. I think they give it a one over. And if you've, you've satisfied enough of, of, uh, of the train department's criteria, if you draw the map well enough and you, you, you don't have any glaring errors, they, they kind yeah. of go over it and probably, pick out a few key things here and there. Yeah, and make sure they don't you, expect you to know everything, but they expect you yeah. to have a good knowledge. Probably. Yeah, exactly. Because the, the, yeah. And there, there's, there's certain things that are more important than others, you know, like uh, it's probably more important to know, you know, all the sectorization and stuff around you than it is to know, Oh, well the distance between this 
uh, intersection and this intersection is 43 nautical miles. Like, right. <laughs> right. <It's> great. <laughs> yeah, good now, for you. Now, th- right. And there, 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 there is a certain application. So the reason why we, we memorize the, the radials of the airways off of EOR is because then later you can, if you know, oh, that airway is 250. Cool. Well, on my scope, that's what a 250 heading looks like. Or if the distance between this, this VOR and this VOR is 80 miles, well, now I know I can kind of eyeball on the scope. Oh, well, he's about here to here. Eh, it's like 30 miles, you know? Yeah. So there is an application. It's, it's good information to have, but it's, um, it's, it's an incredible amount of information. Yeah. yeah. So you, you spend all that time, you draw all the maps, uh, then you go down to the radar floor and you are what's called an A side. Um, an A side in a modern in route facility is completely useless. You do nothing. <laughs> Um, back in the day before we had electronic flight strips, the, the A-sides were responsible for taking the, the paper strips off the printer and delivering them to the sector, uh, which needed them. Right. Right. But now we have, uh, it was Eurets when I got here. Now we call them EDSTs. It's the little computer screens next to every sector that has all of the electronic flight information. We, we very rarely, uh, if ever use paper strips, the only time we need paper strips now is if it's, uh, an airport that we are providing approach control services to. Okay. Um, so really as an A side, you go to the floor and you, you change the printer paper because we're still printing the strips <laughs> despite the fact that we don't use them. Yeah. Um, so you change the printer paper, you plug in and you just watch. That's crazy. Um, you, you sit there and you, you kind of get to know people, you watch how people work, you know, you, you kind of get to know the flows and how things work and, and the, the way we move traffic in every sector. So my, my area has, uh, eight sectors in it. Um, you kind of, you, you, you take your time, you go around the room and you get to know how it works basically. Um, so you spend anywhere from a week to months and months to doing that, waiting for a D school class date. Um, it's what just that? when the next available one is basically when they can get you in. Okay. So I came in, uh, again, and if you want to <laughs> back to my horrible timing, I got hired at the beginning of 2013, uh, sequestration also happened in 2013. <laughs> so I got hired and then nice. they closed the academy down. I was in like the second to last in route academy class that was, was, was in training. So I, I, I showed up to Washington Center and we didn't get another new hire for a year. And I'm still feeling that today because I've been certified for, for over two years now and I am still the most junior fully certified controller in my area. I have a whole bunch of trainees below me, but that doesn't help me when I bid my schedule. But, um, so. Uh, I guess maybe it's important to, to explain that uh, at an in route sector, there are two positions. There's the, the radar controller or the R side is what we call them. And that's as a pilot, that's the guy you're talking to. That's the guy you think of as the air traffic controller. You sit in front of the scope. He's the one talking on the frequency and, and separating airplanes um, next to him. There's a position called uh, the radar associate or what we call the, the D side. The D stands for data. And, um, they sit in front of the flight strips and the electronic, uh, um, the, the EDST as it's called now and manage, you know, routes. They, they do a lot of the behind the scenes coordination. Um, if, you know, if they need to, to coordinate with another sector, another facility, um, they, they can make all the phone calls. So the radar controller can just focus on, on talking to airplanes. Now, most of the time, nice. most of the time it's one guy doing both jobs. Yeah, I was about to say, there's a lot of times where I'd be like, oh, sorry, I was offline doing something else. And it's like, oh, okay. Right, exactly. So most of the time, it's it's just one guy doing, he's sitting in the R side, he's doing the job of the D side. Now, yeah. if a sector gets super busy, um, they might, uh, you can ask for, they might assign you. 
uh, a D side to kind of handle some of that coordination and make sure all the, the routes coming in are good and, and to kind of handle the, the clerical work um, while you can just sit there and focus on the frequency and focus on, on keeping the blips apart. Nice. Um, so the way the training works is you start training just from the D side. So the Academy, you only train the D side. You show up, you spend your time as an A side. I spent eight months as an A side. Um, finally you go to D school you do, it's like two to three months in the lab. You, you do some academic work, you do some lab work. Um, then you kind of, you come around the radar floor, you start training on the D sides. Um, it's excruciating. You're still not talking to airplanes, but you're no. just kind of getting more of a workflow, right? Correct. Yeah. You're still not talking to airplanes, but now you're finally talking to at least other air traffic controllers. <laughs> like, yeah. You have a headset, you're plugged in, you're, you're, you're doing coordination. Um, you know, on, on, on the landline, as you said, you know, that's your, 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 you're doing the behind the scenes stuff. You're, you're, you're playing a somewhat of a functional part of right. the radar environment. Now, the truth is more times than not, you don't need a D side. Yeah. So sometimes it's, it's really frustrating training there. And I'm, I'm training my own D side now. And it's, it's tough because, uh, there's just sometimes where a sector is dead, man. And you're like, all right, let's try and create some work. Like, <laughs> what can we, what can we do? Like, let's, you know, how do we but, get someone in our sector? <laughs> yeah. It's just like, you know, how, how do we, how do we create uh, let's shortcut this guy. So we got to do a point out to the next sector. Like, yeah. um, it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah. So maybe you, you spend some time training on the D side there. Um, that takes, I don't know, anywhere from six months, eight months, a year, maybe not uncommon, about a month per sector is probably fair. Um, and really that depends on how much training you get and, and you know, if there's, if you're getting good training. Um, so you finally get certified on all your D sides one at a time. And then you wait again for our school. Now you go to our school. Now you're actually talking to, well, fake airplanes cause you're in the lab, but you go through another two to three months of academic and, and labs and now you show up, on the floor, show up at the floor again. And after, I don't know, you've been in the building now for a year, maybe a year and a half, two years. Now you finally get to talk to airplanes. That's crazy. Like now you're sitting in front of a radar scope. It's such a process. Like you, yeah. being a pilot, you don't really think about all the training that goes into it. You kind of just think, oh, you show up, you start training. It's like, because when you train to become a pilot, like you're immediately thrown into the airplane. So you'd almost think that they're immediately thrown in and it's a couple weeks and then they're good to go on their own. Right. It's it, at a center, at least, and this is all I can speak for um, at a center. It's certainly not like that. It is a very uh, drawn out process, um, which um, some people would, would argue. I, I don't think it's necessarily for the first. It's, it's not it's not a bad thing. I think, um, you know, we finally have new radar trainees in my area for the first time since I've been here. Um, That's because crazy. We finally we. I was certified for six months before we got a new trainee underneath me. That's, that's, that's how much that hiring freeze hurt us. But, um, we finally have new radar trainees and, you know, they, they were pretty good coming through D sides and expected pretty good things out of them. And to watch them sit down at a radar sector for the first time and talk to airplanes, it's like, man, like they've been doing it for a long time and they still, it's, it's hard. It's, I would, I would equate it to, uh, Checking out at like a level 12, like a high level radar facility or in route facility, it's like getting a graduate degree. Oh, wow. It's like getting a graduate degree in, in ATC, essentially. It's the, yeah. the, amount of, the amount of knowledge you have to have and just the amount of um, sort of intangible skill. It's a lot right. like flying an airplane, like to, 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 to do things like see traffic or to, to, uh, to 
just the the whole idea of smoothly operating a sector it's it's a lot of intangible skills like like landing an airplane you can't you can't explain to me in words how to land an airplane i can't explain to you in words how to work a radar sector it's right. it's just it's experience it's just after a while you either get it or you don't that's crazy yeah it's kind of like you have all this knowledge but some people don't know how to apply that knowledge to a real life situation so i'm right. sure that can separate two people yeah, and that's and that's basically what training is. That's all we do is we take all the knowledge we've acquired, and you know, it's a constant learning process. And even certified now, you know, I, I learn stuff every day. It's you know, um, you take the knowledge you've you've learned and you apply it, and you see enough situations, and you make plans, and this worked, and this didn't work. Okay, so I won't do that next time. Like you, there's a lot of learning the hard way. Honestly, training training on the radar. Um, it's it's a uh, it's a very very long process, but I think it it needs to be a very long process. Yeah, for sure. And then it's also nice to know that you have. Uh, I'm sure when you're training, you also have someone behind you that can help catch any mistakes that you make. Yeah, of course. So there's there's two jacks at every every sector you plug in, and then the uh, there's like an override jack next to it. So if you say something really stupid, I'm sure you've probably heard this too, right? Like a like a controller says something, and then immediately you hear another voice come over and say. <laughs> Disregard. disregard yeah, disregard, disregard. It's like, okay. <laughs> Maintain one, 2000. Like, yeah. Oh yeah. That's, that's cause you just descended it into the face. The guy you weren't looking at going the other yeah. way. Right? My favorite thing is when, when I'm flying and I'm kind of paying attention and kind of understanding how the sector's working. Cause I know a lot of, sometimes pilots like to do that so they can anticipate and I'll get like a, a weird vector. I'll get something else. Like, I don't think I should do that. And then all of a sudden you hear <laughs> disregard. It's like, yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, it's never, it's never like if you, if you ever think this is important, uh, uh, air traffic control, like we, we are not perfect. If you ever get a clearance that you, uh, you're like, uh, are you sure about that? Like by all means question it every time, uh, you know, I'll give a guy, anyone a clearance and I'll say, Hey, just, just verify that that was a uh, flight level two nine or zero. My response oh, yeah. every single time is, Hey, thank you for asking. It was flight level two nine or zero. Like I would so much rather a pilot double check rather than just be like, no, nah, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was two nine. Yeah, like, definitely. No, because please. you will avoid any kind of getting in trouble, any anything if you yeah. ask, and they're not oh. going to care if you ask. I mean, maybe if you ask like five times, okay. <laughs> even today, they gave me a takeoff clearance. They told me where to turn, and then as I was rolling, I was like, "Hey, can you repeat that?" Like, I just want to double yeah. check that I had that right because it oh. matters a lot where you turn because there's traffic there. I would so much rather uh, uh, answer answer a question rather than just have have a pilot guess. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's uh, that's a really really good uh, lesson I think to take from all that. Yeah, for sure. And then, um, oh, what was I going to say? All right, keep going. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, well, I, I ended up, I, I fully certified in about 25 months from the time I walked through the door. Um, is that a was, typical amount of time or is that longer or is that shorter? It was kind of quick. Um, I actually, I had really good trainers who sat with me. It's like just for incredibly long sessions, man. And we would, we would work and work and work. Um, I was one of the more junior trainees in the building. So I kind of had, I had crappy days off. So I was training with mostly younger people as opposed to the more senior trainees who had like, you know, weekends off right. and we're trying to train with the old guys. Um, so it, uh, I always tell this to, to new people coming to the building is like, I know like the idea of having Friday, Saturday or Saturday, Sunday sounds good right now, but you're going to be training with the old guys. The old guys do not care about, seniority five years from now they care about their break right now <laughs> that's the, so true 
the young guy who has Wednesday, Thursday off will sit with you for, for two straight hours to train you because he wants you to do well and he wants you to certify because when you certify, you become his break. He cares about breaks five years from now, not, not breaks right now. Right. So I, I was actually really fortunate. I think I, I, I certified faster than people who I came through training with who had weekends off. And it's certainly through no skill of my own. Um, it was, uh, very, very much in part to the fact that I got a lot more training, um, having bad days off. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's, I certified, that's cool, though. certified in June of, uh, 2013. No, it's not right. June of 2015. And, uh, that's it, man. The rest is history here. I, and here I am. I, uh, <laughs> it's, it's actually very anticlimactic. So you think like, Oh, what a great accomplishment. But so you, it's incremental. So you get, one sector at a time. Um, one day you can work seven sectors. The next day you can work eight. That's it. That's crazy. <laughs> like, yeah. You think like, you think like, Oh, what a, what a crazy accomplishment. Um, but it's, it's, I, I remember I certified and I was like, well, you know, gosh, what now? Like this whole time I spent three years just working and, and trying to, to get to this point. And every day it's just a grind. And now you certified. Now it's like, well, now what? Well, now, now you just work. <laughs> now I do. Now my you, job. yeah. Okay. Now you show up to work and you do this for twenty five years. Like it's 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 very like oh, you almost kind of reach like an existential crisis of like you're climbing this mountain and this, you're climbing and climbing. You're working so hard and you get to the top and you're like, this is it. Yeah, like what? What, what do you mean this is it? <laughs> right, and then all right, well that's and and I, I do I enjoy the job. I uh, I like I said like I said. Uh, too early. I think the only thing that I, I really um, regret is, is I missed the flight benefits. Certainly, um, yeah. But I, I do. I I love going to work. I work with a lot of really good people. Um, it's there are some days that I it's harder to say that than others. Yeah, for sure. Well, that goes <laughs> uh, with all jobs, though. Right, especially this time of year, man. We're in the dog days of summer. It seems like every night's a swap night. We're just getting our brains beat in with thunderstorms every single night. Yep. I have been working overtime every week of the summer and listen, I like money as much as the next guy, but I also, uh, it's, it's tough, man. Like you just, it, it's really, it's demoralizing working six days a week after, after a long enough time. There's some facilities who've been doing it for years and years and years. I mean, this is, um, it's been a long summer. Uh, oh, yeah. I'll be, I'll be happy when, when, when we can just go back to crappy rides and not thunderstorms. Although I, I don't know about that. <laughs> you and me both, man. Pilots are the same. We, we don't like thunderstorms. I'm sure you guys don't like thunderstorms. They just don't make things very easy sometimes. Yes. It makes for a very long night. We have, we, we get weather briefings now when we come in. So we walk in and uh, there's a little TV screen that plays a loop of uh, a weather briefing, basically that the, that the center weather service unit guys, the meteorologists who work at the center, they, uh, they make us a weather briefing and they'll say, you know, uh, well, you know, we're expecting isolated thunderstorms over North Carolina tonight. And it's like, oh, like <laughs> I just need to turn right back around and take eight hours of sick leave and go home. Like, yeah, it's just there. There's always that moment of like, oh, do I really want to do this? Like, yeah, I'm not feeling so well. Yeah. today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, supervisor. I'm suddenly feeling kind of ill. So I have actually a funny story about Washington Center. I was flying UPS stuff in Edenton, North Carolina and flying to Raleigh. Edenton is actually, that's right, uh, just adjacent to my airspace. That's awesome. Maybe so, like 10 miles south of a, of a sector I work. Well, I had to deviate to the north to avoid all these thunderstorms. So I don't know if I was talking to you or not, but there was a point when, all right, so everything was going bad this night. Uh, the freight was late. I 
needed a pre-flight the plane and everything was kind of going bad so it delayed me and the thunderstorms in North Carolina were kind of exploding at a really late time and I was not anticipating them to explode the way they did it was like nine o'clock at night mm-hmm. and you think oh it's nine o'clock at night the storms are going to die down a little bit but no That's what you think yeah they only got worse and from the time when I took off there was no red just a little bit of yellow mostly green from my route to Edenton to Greensboro because I missed my time in Raleigh because the freight was so late. So I had to fly ah. to Greensboro to try to make that jet. And then in between the time I took off, which was probably like five minutes, the weather just exploded. And once my ra- once my weather radar, my onboard weather radar kicked in, I have never seen so much red in my life. <laughs> it was honestly the most terrifying thing that ever happened. I, com- I thought about turning around and landing and then I kind of sat there and I kind of flew a little bit and I kind of studied the, the radar and I saw what was happening. I noticed that there's a big hole to the north and that I could make it in just fine. And I listened to the METARs on the way and I found out where, what altitude would not have clouds and stuff like that. So I made sure I was, I was safe because you know, in that situation, Situation. Even if you're not flying through red, green, or yellow, there's some good chances that those uh, those clouds are going to have some serious development and oh, will yeah. not be fun to fly through. But anyways, sure. back to my story where I was going with Washington Center. I uh, When I made my deviation to the north, I got handed off to someone else. And I don't know if this is where you work or not. I can't remember where it was or where it, what I requested you, to fly. If you're going from Edenton to Raleigh and you deviate north of that, that's going to go right into into one of uh, one of my sectors. Yeah, it's it's that's a combined awesome. sector. We usually work. It's uh, sectors 21 and 33. It's uh, 132.02 or 118.75. That's awesome. Well, anyways, when I when I requested that and they sent me to the next controller, I got there and the control. Well, after I checked on, I told them I was doing the controller goes. I honestly don't know why you're flying today. Like you should be on the ground. And I was like, <laughs> what? I, I kind of like took me aback a little bit and I was like, what the heck? How do I, what do I say to that? And yeah. I was like, well, I have a plan. I know what I'm going to do. Like if you clearly look, you can see that up north looks fine. So I'm going to do this. And like, I, I understand why he said that because it probably wasn't the best chance to fly. And I want to recommend anyone else flying on that day. I mean, there's, you would need some experience to fly on a day like that. And I used my experience to figure out a plan, figure out a way to get there. And I got there just fine. Stayed VMC, got a great lightning show off both my wings. And I got to sure, see, yeah. but it was great, but that just threw me off so much. And I feel like if he would have said that to like a new pilot, that could have really thrown him in to be like, Oh my gosh, what do I do now? And kind of made him second guess his decision making. But that was, that was very interesting. I've never heard a, a controller say that before. I, 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 there's a handful of people in my area who I could imagine that, uh, who I can imagine saying something like that. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. you know, they, they, in every industry, right? Um, yep. And, and there, there's always the, the 5%, right? Yep, for and, sure. And, and truthfully, I'm sure I've had my, uh, my frustrated moments on frequency where I've, uh, uh, perhaps lost my temper a bit. It's, if it's nine o'clock at night, that guy's probably been there since maybe one, two o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, yeah. Um, He's was just, a, his airspace was just ridiculous with storms too. So I can imagine yeah. he's, you know, he's, he's probably been, you know, it's, it, if it's a bad night for you, it's a bad night for us too. And he's probably just been getting his, his brain just beat in all night. Um, and, and by nine o'clock at night when the storms are still building, there's a tendency to be like, ah, like just <laughs> stop flying your airplanes, people like, yeah. It's, you know, there's, there's, there's no holes to get through. Like, you know, where, where do you want to go? Like, Oh, we want to deviate left for the next like 130 miles. Like, okay. It's like, like thunderstorms. That's maybe one of the most frustrating things is like, we can do volume. Like volume doesn't scare us. Like you, you can give me a radar sector that's jam packed full of airplanes. Um, that's fine. I know where everyone's going. Everyone's on a route. And the routes are, are maximized to stay inside of sectors and limit the amount of coordination I have to do off the line. Now, 
stick a thunderstorm cell right in the middle of that and everyone wants to to deviate left and right around that my workload increases like tremendously so suddenly the number of airplanes i can work goes like cut in half because now every single airplane it's going to require an an extra amount of mental effort to make sure that i don't smack him with another airplane because he's not on the route that i expect him to be on now he's also going to creep over and kind of run the boundary between me and the next sector maybe go into the next sector a little bit so i got to call and do a do a point out and say hey watch this guy i'm going to borrow some airspace for a bit um what what you know what becomes or what would have otherwise been like the guy checks on the guy leaves becomes i got to make three phone calls and 15 extra transmissions to this guy. Like it it becomes, um, a really long night. And believe me, I, to me, I feel like I, I have a longer, uh, maybe, maybe longer. Like, uh, I have a, uh, higher tolerance, higher tolerance. Exactly. Yeah. I was gonna say longer leash, but that's not, that's not the right term. (laughs) I have a higher tolerance. Uh, I have a higher tolerance, uh, I think towards dealing with, um, the 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 problems of pilots and it was oh we we're not liking a ride here you know and I think that's because I I was there I I remember what it was like and I, I case in point I um was holding for I believe Baltimore the other day maybe a, two weeks ago um and uh, I got a whole just giant holding stack because there's a thunderstorm over Baltimore right now and. Uh, Guys, like, all right, well, uh, are we gonna get out in the next like five minutes? I'm like, all right, let me, let me, let me make a phone call. I'll try and see. <laughs> and because uh, he was clearly getting to bingo, and he's gonna have to go to like Richmond if he can't, uh, if he can't get to Baltimore. And I said, uh, I called Potomac, and I was like, man, dude, just take this one guy. Like, he's 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 low on gas. Can you squeeze him in, in any way? And he's like, ah, I'll take one. I'm like, all right, <laughs> you'll do one. All right, good. Um, because I remember, I remember being in holding sacks and having to divert and how much that screws up your entire trip. Maybe it's day four. Maybe you're going to miss your commute now. Maybe you're not going to make it home. Now, yeah. I should, maybe I shouldn't think of that stuff, you know, like, because <laughs> that's not my job to think of that stuff. But it, it, of course, it's still in the back of my head. And I think about like, you know, I, I think what the passengers do. Like, I've been, I've been a passenger on planes that are diverted before. Like, I, 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 I try my absolute best, whereas sometimes maybe some of my coworkers will be like, screw it, divert. I don't care. Yeah. It's like, like whatever, not my yeah, problem. Exactly. I, I get to go home tonight regardless. Right. I, I, I suck. <laughs> exactly. I think it's, I think it's important to, uh, to try and maintain that perspective. And, and it's funny because I, the sectors you were describing, um, if, if we're talking about the same thing and I believe we are, um, it's, it's the only sector, it's only, it's two sectors that are always combined. Um, and it's the only sectors we work that actually own airports that, that owns airspace to the ground. Oh, wow. Every, yeah, no, that's definitely it. Yeah. Everything else we have approach controls underneath this. So this particular sector, um, we, we own, I think it's 11 uncontrolled airport, airports that we, that we work. Um, but people, most people, I think, in my area, most controllers don't like working those sectors <laughs> because you're just dealing with like VFR guys all day, and you're it's a lot of like this, you know slow like low and slow guys who stay in your airspace for an hour and a half. Like they want to go sit at the high, and they want to they want to you know bust some jets, and and yeah. I I love working our low sectors because I I don't mind talking to the VFR Yahoo out there flying this Mooney around for the first time in a month. <laughs> That's awesome. um, because I remember, I remember being a clueless VFR pilot 
And I remember be- getting flight following as a, as a student pilot or as a, as a private pilot. And ATC was like the voice of God in your ear. Uh, I, I, I remember being just like, uh, like, you know, completely clueless on a frequency and, you know, uh, uh the difference between a, a patient and accommodating air traffic controller and like, you know, pardon my language, but just a dick, like it makes a huge, huge difference. So I, I like working our low sectors. Maybe I should have worked at a Tracon. Maybe I made a mistake. Maybe I should have been a <laughs> I think about this sometimes. Yeah. I, I, the favorite sector, the favorite sector we have is, is the low one. And then the one I like the least is actually the, uh, kind of our super high. It's 30,000 feet and above, uh, over, over central Virginia. We just work like Newark's and Phillies and LaGuardia's and yeah. it's just boring. And we got to like do a lot of vectoring and a lot of holding. And it's just, yeah. Uh, and all I, the pilots are in a bad mood because they have to go to Newark, Philly, exactly. or JFK. So you know, yeah. I, don't, I don't blame them. I don't blame them, you know. All right, James, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, that was so much great information. We kind of talked about your story, how you were a pilot, how you had this dream of becoming an air traffic controller, but it just didn't work out. And you kept becoming a pilot and you worked for caravan, you flew caravans, you flew in the regionals, and then eventually you got the opportunity to become an air traffic controller. And then we talked about the process of becoming a, from being zero to become a controller and what it's like to do that. And I think that'll be very beneficial for people listening now that might want to be a controller. So I really thank you for sharing that. Um, I would love to have you on the future so we could talk about some stories that you have for being an air traffic controller. Cause I know pilots and probably most of the people listening to this are pilots and they kind of hear the pilot side of everything. And they're used to the pilot side of everything. It'd be kind of cool to hear the ATC version of everything and how they see things. So I'd love to have you back on. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to. Awesome, man. Well, like I said, thanks for coming on and uh, I wish you the best and everything and look forward to talking to you soon. Yeah. Hey, let me know. uh, Let me know when you're coming through and uh, I'll give you a shout out on the frequency. Sounds good. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. All right. Aviation that's a wrap on today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Like always, follow Pilot to Pilot, like this episode, steal someone's phone, and subscribe to the podcast. Seriously, go do it. But Aviation, hope you have a great day. As always, happy flying.